Um, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read something really briefly for you. This is not where we're going to land, but I, this script, passage of Scripture is, is not what we're, we're going to be talking through, but it is so beautiful that it's worth reading for you and praying over you, praying over Ian and Tiffany, praying over one another. And then we're going to get into our text for this morning, but I didn't want to miss it. I'll tell you that I know for a fact that my mom prays this over all of her kids and grandkids. It's one of the, one of the, uh, the scriptures that she prays frequently, and so I wanted you to hear it before we moved on. It's not even on the screen, because, um, it, but I, did, I think I did put it in, in new version for you. Ephesians chapter 3. Remember that Paul has been talking about the marvelous plan that God has for the Gentiles, that he, ha- he has made two groups one. He has brought unity between the Jews and Gentiles and made one family. And then he says this, verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, you say, amen. If that prayer is not highlighted in your Bible, this is just your opportunity to do so right this minute. If you're in the YouVersion app, you can, of course, just tap it and then pick your favorite color, and you can do that right now. This, uh, what we just finished reading, is the halfway point in Ephesians. So we've been learning about our position and the privileges of being in Christ and accepting our status as children of God and really trying to settle those facts. And now we're going to navigate life and ministry with all that we know that we have in Christ. So the focus now kind of switches in the book of Ephesians to practicing our theology in church, practicing it, living it out in our community, in our marriages, in our families, at work, and of course, uh, in the spiritual realm, understanding the spiritual battle. Because if you don't know who you are in Christ, you first of all don't even know you're probably in a spiritual battle, and you certainly don't know your position and authority in Christ in that battle. So we're going to get to all of that as we continue in the month of October. And here's the deal. It's like this. We must live, chapters 4 to 6, which we're going to get to, like the people we have become, chapters 1 to 3. We've been talking a lot about who we've become. That always comes first. But now that we understand who we are in Christ, now our lives overflow with all that we are going to now live out and and do the the good works that have been prepared in advance for us to do. And so we jump into chapter 4, these first six verses we're going to focus in on this morning. Verse 1 says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You might notice that uh, this happens a couple of times in the book of Ephesians. Actually, Paul does it a lot in his letters, but specifically here, he starts this, this kind of second half of his letter by reminding them again uh, he's a prisoner for the Lord. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Is he looking for sympathy from the church in Ephesus? Guys, just don't even forget, I'm writing this from prison. That's not exactly what he's doing. What he's doing here is he just brings it up again. Uh, commentators pretty much agree on this, that he brings it up again and again and again to remind them that regardless of the consequences of him preaching the gospel, regardless of whatever happens to him here on earth, this life in Christ is worth living. It doesn't matter what his circumstances, doesn't matter where he finds himself, doesn't matter what kind of trouble he gets himself into. Everything he does for Christ and in Christ is worth it. So very very worth it. And so what he's about to ask them to do, uh, chapters four to six, how he's going to ask them in very practical ways to live out who they are in Christ, he's telling them it's going to be worth it. I know that we're going to set a a standard that's high. I know we're going to set the bar high, but I promise you that this life in Christ is so very worth it. He tells them live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. So what is this calling that we have received? Just a quick a little refresher from all, all over the New Testament here. We are called to be connected to Christ. We are called to share in Christ's accomplishments. We are called to be holy. We are called to be free. We are called to embrace hope and called to eternal life. And so here Paul is saying, I want you to live a life that is worthy of this incredible calling that you've received. Actually, he um, speaking of prayers, like we just read from Ephesians 3, Paul praise this in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12, in an incredibly beautiful way. He says this to that church, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying there for that church, and and of course for us, he's praying that by Christ's power working in us, there would be such a desire for goodness and the ability to do those deeds, those things, those works, prompted by faith so that our lives would be lived out in a way that is worthy of this incredible calling that we've received in Christ. And because of that, because of how we live our lives, because of what's seen in our lives, because of these things that we are doing, Jesus would be glorified in us and through us. And so in Ephesians 4, he begins the second half of this letter to that church. He begins to outline what this worthy life is characterized by. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the calling? What does it look like to live as the people we have become? He says it's about humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance in love. 
might not sound like an action item kind of list, but you know, if you know, that these things are in fact uh, very, very action oriented. That word humility, he calls them to humility. That word humility, um, I was reading about uh, the kind of the definitions of these words as, as, as I do when I'm working on these messages. And um, I learned that this word humility, which we, we think of as quite a beautiful characteristic, it's a beautiful thing when somebody's humble as opposed to arrogant or prideful. This word was made honorable by Christianity, many, many believe. Because in the culture at the time, if somebody was humble, it was actually not a compliment. But after Jesus, after watching his life and how he laid down his life and how he was so humble, even though he was the king of the universe, he came, as you know, as he did, he was so humble and the way he served was so beautiful and what he gave up uh, was, was so incredible and what he did was so amazing that humility became an honorable uh, description of somebody. Gentleness is an interesting one. Gentleness actually means somebody who is powerful or has power, but it is under control. Gentleness isn't weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. You have all of this and you choose to be gentle with others. Patience, of course, having long suffering with others. Patience almost always means with others. Not always, but almost always. It's long suffering with others, having patience. You think, you know, in any situation, I don't know anybody who doesn't say, oh, I just need to grow in patience. All of us feel this way. Even in the grocery store lineup, you have to have, it's not about just about waiting, it's about having long suffering with others who have 35 items in the 10 item line. You're, it's long suffering with others. This is what patience means, literally. And patience, as you well know, think about this, patience is a quality of mature people. If someone is mature, they are able to relax, be okay, and give grace. They're able to bear with someone in their 35 items in the 10 item line or whatever it is. And of course, love, this word in the Greek, you probably heard agape. This kind of love is described by, by this word is, is a love that doesn't seek anything but the highest good of others. It was described by, by one writer as unconquerable benevolence. That's good, right? Unconquerable benevolence. This is what uh, the beginning of Ephesians 4 says, is what a life worthy of this calling is characterized by. He says, be humble and gentle, be patient and bear with each other in love. That's first. I want you to just pause and imagine what that looks like in this church. Just stare a little bit at those words. What would it look like if this was all we were known for? That we were humble and gentle and patient, and we bore with one another in love above all things. Wouldn't that be incredible? Maybe like me, you can picture it. I can picture it. I really can. And then my next thought right after that is, I love that for you. Am I doing that? I love that as a picture of our church, but the question really has to be reflected back to me. Is that a description of my life? 
because that's how the church operates. It's each one of us making a decision to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. Can I describe myself like this has to be the question. But I suspect that none of us would disagree that being in that kind of an environment where we were surrounded by those kinds of qualities would be incredibly healing and helpful and hopeful and extraordinarily countercultural. That if people who don't know Christ came and found a community who this was all the characteristics that was just constantly being brought to the front because we were so committed to living the life worthy of the calling that we've received, that it would change people's lives just by, by, uh, by proximity to that. They would see Christ in what we were doing and, and want to be a part of that in such a beautiful way. So the question is, how is this possible in the church? How can we do that? How can we possibly? We're so broken. We're so flawed. It's like we're, we're pretty selfish. Like we, we really care so much about our own space and our own stuff. And, and uh, maybe I'm just describing myself, but I know that I struggle with that. But I want you to remember chapters 1 to 3, which we've now walked all the way through. With all that we have in Christ, remember what we have. His, I mean, a lot. I mean, we've said so much, I know, but let me just summarize a few. We have his incomparably great power. We have been given everything that we need. And now we walk in the good deeds that were planned in advance for us. So we have literally been given everything we need. We have a plan set out for us and we have his incomparably great power to strengthen us to do the thing that we were called to do. This is not about us muscling our way through it or figuring out how to do it on our own or just being better. You ever done that? Tomorrow, I'm going to wake up. I do that with my, like, you know, after I eat cake or something. I'm like, tomorrow, I'm going to wake up and do better, whatever. This is not that. This is not that. It's not just a willpower or gritting your teeth. The instruction in verse 3 actually says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So then drawing on who we are in Christ, this new nature we've been talking about, and our total security as children of God, we live out these characteristics. And as we live out these characteristics, it displays unity and peace in our church family. That's what is supposed to be happening. That's the transaction that's supposed to be happening here. Listen, there was then and there is now an endless amount of variety of temperaments in the church diverse uh, racial and social backgrounds. And honestly, all of this, uh, all, all of these uh, different varieties of people, this the diversity among us is beautiful, but it also can be a recipe for disaster. Because through those things, we also find hurt sometimes, or we misunderstand one another. We can silo into the groups that are comfortable for us, and it becomes an us versus them mentality among us so quickly. A lot can go wrong when people like us gather. Did you know that? A lot can go wrong. So the call here is to be even more keenly aware of the spiritual realities that unite us. To, be, to make that the primary thing always. And, and this is not just here. I mean, we talked about it in chapter two. It's all over scripture. But those spiritual realities, the things that unite us, the things that we are one in, always transcend any other difference in our background, however you would want to describe that, in our temperament, in our preferences. 
And so the instruction here is to act with humility, to be gentle with each other, to bear with each other patiently and with unconditional love. And as you apply effort to these things, the unity that God gives will be protected and nourished. You'll be able to feel his peace. Listen to all these words that come out in this very short little passage of scripture. You'll be able to feel his peace because it's not peace like the world gives, but it's actually soul-level peace that's from Jesus. This is what he promised us in John 14, 27. I don't give you peace like the world gives. I give you my peace. And this is what is, it, we're being told, that if we apply ourselves to living like the people that we have become, that this is the kind of environment that we can expect in Christ. And again, in verse 3, that word keep, keep, and keep, you have to keep this unity. Why? Because it implies something very interesting that I missed, but almost every resource that I read about this brought it up. And that's that if, some, if you are keeping something, it implies that it's already been given right? It's already been given to you. You're not trying to attain unity. You are trying to keep the unity that you've already been given because we don't have unity naturally. Naturally, like I said, we silo. Naturally, we find what's comfortable. Naturally, we don't try to like, like cross over divides in our backgrounds or our, or our ethnicities or whatever you would want to create divisions and groups over. We, we're good at doing it in so many different ways, aren't we? But, but in, naturally, we don't have that. But this unity, it says, has been already given to us in the spirit. It is something given by the Spirit. It's not something that we create, the unity that is in the body of Christ. And the language here tells us that we have to be attentive to that fact in order to keep it. So hear this, we aren't creating unity by being awesome. I often say this to you, you are, you're great, I love you. But that's not what's happening here. We're not creating unity by just doing better. We've already been given this unity in the Spirit and our command is to keep it by being cautious about, about what we do about it. There's a, a warning here that this gift can be lost if we don't protect it. And when he says, make every effort, like that language there has overtones of take the initiative, do it now, mean it when you do it. Like there's that emphasis in the original language there that we have to take this very, very Seriously, so what is unity and why does it matter so much? What is the big deal? Really, it's just quite simply staying on the same page in spite of our differences. It's keeping the main things the main things. It's not breaking relationships over things that don't matter or things that, honestly, you need to forgive and let go of instead of walking away. Maybe it's about humbling yourself and asking for forgiveness in, in, instead of just hoping that the person just gets over it on their own. It's about not breaking relationships over things that don't matter, the things that need to be dealt with. It's focusing everything always on Jesus and letting the Holy Spirit work on each part. And as the Spirit does his work, you may have noticed that there are people who are at different places and the Holy Spirit is doing different things in their life than he's doing in your life. You never notice that? Sometimes it's annoying because once you figure something out or the Lord shows you something and he's working on something in you, you think everybody needs to be with you at that point. And that might be true, but you know, the Lord works on us in different ways, in different stages, at different times when we are ready to hear what we need to hear. 
And so as the Lord does his work, we bear with each other and we love one another fiercely and we point one another to Jesus over and over and over again as he does his work among us. In the church, unity means right doctrine and right relationship. It means that we forgive and we show grace unconditionally. Because honestly, friends, if we're, not, if we're not even just starting there, I don't know what we're doing. Because you don't even have a relationship with Jesus unless that was given to you already. And it's such an interesting, you have to keep your perspective there, that you are able to love and show grace unconditionally to those who offend you, to those who are different from you, than those who see it differently than you. You are able to do it. Why? Because Jesus has poured himself out for you and did that before you even cared about him. And now we walk just being filled with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the grace and love and mercy of God every day, being loved unconditionally, uh, being forgiven over and over and over again. And so it's, that's the posture that we, we, just, we should be thinking about every single other person with all the time. Otherwise, you haven't understood what you've received. So we forgive and show grace unconditionally, but we also confess and repent of our sins and our offenses. That kind of unconditional love and grace doesn't mean that we get away with everything. It means that we have a, a safe space, and I use that in the best possible terms, we have a safe space to say, I am broken and I have failed and I need forgiveness. I need help, I am struggling in this area, and I know I can take it to my church family because this is a place of unconditional love. We also correct things that don't align with Scripture. Again, grace and love don't mean that we say, you know what, we love you so much, everything goes here. That's not how, we love you so much that we need to point you to God's word. And you need to point me to God's word. And all of us together, this is how we do this well. We balance what Jesus did. Oh, we can just be like Jesus, like grace and truth. Who did it like him? Nobody. He's perfect. I know. He's awesome. I get it. But grace and truth so perfectly balanced in the life and ministry of Jesus on display for us. This is what we are talking about when we are talking about protecting and keeping unity in the church. How is it possible to do this when we're all so broken, so many, so we're just works in progress, I know. Pastor Dell points out that the way that we are able to do this, again, if you're new, we're walking uh, with Pastor Dell's course, Get Secure. And uh, this, is, this is, of course, one of those chapters. And Pastor Dell in that says to remember the seven essentials that brought us here this morning. Why are you here? My mom made me calm. Good. Good job, mom. Also, why are you here? Why are you here? What brought you here this morning? Whether you realized it or not, whether it was just part of your, your routine or not, we keep these things in the front in case we ever lose sight of them. I'm going to push them back in the front again. Pastor Dell says this too often. The church is noted for what it is against rather than what it is for. Untold damage has been done to the church's reputation through infighting and divisions among self-professed believers. That's a hard word, self-professed believers. Personal preferences and interpretations of Scripture have dominated the time, energy, and resources of the body of Christ, while the important ministry matters have often been sidelined because of it. Any hope of revival and renewal in the church will require a refocusing on the things that unite us as believers according to God's Word. 
Paul lists seven, seven essentials of oneness that must be constantly affirmed by all believers to facilitate and maintain the unity of the church family. These are truths that need to be the basis of what we all agree on and declare. As you work through this list, reflect on each reality of oneness that unites you and your church family and assess and write down how you support it. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Those seven essentials of oneness have to be constantly affirmed by all believers to facilitate and maintain in the unity of the church family. This is what we're about, church. This is first. This is primary. There's an interesting note that I came across as well in my study of this passage that I had never heard before, but I thought it might be interesting for you just in your personal uh, Bible study especially here in the book of, of Ephesians, that, when it, that Paul has a, the tendency to use the word Christ when he's talking about salvation and Lord when he's talking about ethics. So if we're breaking up this letter, it's not a perfect separation, of course, of these uh, three chapters on each side, but, um, but just in, in general, talking about uh, the people we have become, that's who Jesus is and what he's done. That's our salvation. You hear... Uh, Paul says so often how Jesus is the Christ. He's our, our Messiah. So when it comes to salvation by faith through grace, who we are in him, Jesus is our Christ, our Savior and our Messiah. But when he's talking uh, about ethics, Paul will so often talk about him as Lord. Lord Jesus. He is the Lord. When it comes to living out this truth, Jesus is our Lord and our Master. He's the one who gets to tell us what to do basically. And we're surrendered to that because we understand how good that is. So again, we must live like the people we have become. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Here at Freedom, we try to capture um, this in our core value that we call connecting. Um, I'm going to use Ephesians to talk this week, next week, and the week after about our three core values. Because it's important that you understand why it is that we do the things that we do, and we don't just make it up out of thin air. It's like these just seem like really good catchwords, catchphrases to, to put together. I see it. Oh, I could, I've preached this message, these core values, from so many places in Scripture. Pastor Dell did the same uh, before, before I became lead. We just, it's, it's everywhere in Scripture. You'll see it. Here at Freedom, we are, we are capturing this kind of idea that we just talked about in this core value of connecting. In other words, we are actively working to provide an environment of connecting with God and with others. And the first thing we want you to do always is to connect with God. Why? Because everything we have is because of who we are in Christ. And you, first of all, in your life, need to be connected to that fact. If, if we don't spend time growing in our relationship with Jesus, if we don't hang out in his presence, if we don't hear his voice, if we don't learn to love him in response to how much he has loved us and given himself as a sacrifice for us, 
we don't have what we need for all the rest of it. We have to start in a place where we love his presence. We can't protect the unity of the body because without being in his presence, without being transformed by the spirit daily, we can't be humble and gentle and patient and forbearing and loving. We need the continual infilling of the Spirit in order to walk these things out. We need to be connected with God. We need our connection to Jesus to be the most important thing in our lives. It has to be first. Are you in the presence of Jesus daily? Church, I have to just pause here and challenge you. That if this is not a part of your walk with the Lord, do just don't do anything else until you settle this peace. I'm not going to tell you prescriptively what that looks like, but you know whether or not you have been with the Lord. Are you in his word? Are you praying? Are you focusing on him? Do you worship with all of your heart? Do you consider everything through the lens of what the Lord would have for you? You need to be in his presence. You need to con continually be filled. You can't just drain the well. <laughs> I was just hearing about that this morning. Sorry, guys, about your, your well problems. But if you can continue to drain the well, you need a, a, a consistent inflow and overflow of what the Holy Spirit has for you. And if you haven't found those moments in those places, I don't know what else to say to you. Stop everything right now and do that first. You have to know who Jesus is. Please. Know who Jesus is. That's not my message, and I want to yell about it for a little bit longer, but I won't. Thank you. We have to be people of his presence. This is the biggest lesson I have learned, especially in 20 years of ministry. I am super good at I don't know how to say it in a way that's like, does it, I mean, I'm trying not just to make myself sound like a super dumb person, but um, I grew up in the church and I, I feel like I know how to do so much ministry on my own strength. That's the way to say it. I do. I know what to say. I, I know all of the things. I know all the catchphrases, especially if I'm leading worship, which I've been doing since I was, I don't know, small, young. I've always been small, young. Uh, but I've been doing it so long. I know, I know how to ramp up the bridge. I know how to do all the things. Like, I know all the things. And you know what happens when you lead and you serve and you try to do things for God from that place of just knowing what to do? You are empty at the end of it. But I have learned in the last 20 years by much humility, by falling on my face many, many times. And I don't mean in prayer. I mean like embarrassing myself. I'm like doing dumb things. I'm feeling a dry and empty. Is that I needed what I needed. I needed not to be on the platform. I needed to be doing that in the secret place. I needed to be worshiping on my own. I needed to be in prayer on my own. I needed to hear from the spirit for myself and from my family. And from that place, I can serve with so much love and so much grace. I can serve and listen to the Holy Spirit and not be concerned with what people think about me. I have so many words to say about this. I can hear it in my voice. But let me just tell you, you need the presence of God, not the activities of your religion. He will lead you to what you need to do. He has these things prepared in advance for you to do, but you need the presence of God first. But that's not all we need. We have to be vitally connected to one another. There is no category. Clap, clap, clap. Not in my notes. There is no category for people who say they are Christian and are not actively involved in the church. 
It looks like a lot of things. It has a lot, there's a lot of roles. There's a, a lot of different ways that we can minister, but scripture is so clear about our membership in the body of Christ. Romans 12:5 says, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. 1 Corinthians 12 says the same thing. When we don't submit to the command to keep this unity, to understand where we belong and be connected to the body of Christ, it says that we've lost, Colossians says, we have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. What is the head? No, wrong question. Not what, but who. We connect with Jesus and therefore we are connected to one another. And Colossians says, from that place is where we grow. So, we have to be connected with God, vitally connected with God. And we have to fight for the idea that we are, have to be vitally connected to one another as well. We cannot do this by ourselves, and we, we can't pretend that we're cool by ourselves. We need one another. So what do we do if we want to live like the people we have become? If we want to live lives worthy of the calling we received, as it says in the beginning of chapter 4? Two things. Seek the presence of God. Don't let anything be a substitute for it. Long for him and know him. Draw near to God and he will, do you know this one? Draw near to you. This is the promise. Ask, seek, find. You're going to, like, he's, he's just made himself available to you, but he's not going to force that. Long for him and know him. And the second thing is to function as the member of the body that you are. This isn't a matter of trying to find your place, squeezing it at the table, hoping that we can make some room for you in the body of Christ. You already have a place. You already are specifically called and gifted in some, as, in some way as a member of the body of Christ. It isn't a matter of figuring out how involved in church you want to be. You already are involved. Because we're members of the same body. You're like, but I'm not serving anywhere. We know. We know. Okay? You are part of the body. It's like, it's like waking up in the morning and you were sleeping on your left arm and your left arm is dead for a little while. It's like, it doesn't cease to be part of my body. It just doesn't work the way it's supposed to. We need every member to understand that they're already vitally connected to the body. And if you're not working together in that kind of unity, it matters. It matters. It isn't even a matter of socially connecting with one another, though you guys do that really well. Hospitality is important. It's commanded. But this is about functioning together as the body of Christ, and it means that we take every opportunity together to challenge one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to love each other, to call one another out, to show generosity to each other. And, and again, Colossians, because it says that in that space, when we are vitally connected to the head and to one another, then God causes us to grow. And what I want for my life, what I want for you, is for us to be growing in the Lord. Are we living like the people we have become? That's the challenge of the next couple of weeks. Are we living like the people we have become? I don't know what this looks like in your life specifically. That's what's so beautiful about the diversity in the room. All of us gifted differently. All of us uh, 
carrying uh, different things with us, God, uh, preparing specifically for you different things that, that um, he's called you to do. I don't know if that is. But I would invite you that if you are not vitally connected to God, if you are not in his presence, getting to know him, and if you are not vitally connected to the body, uh, like I said, you actually already are. It's functioning as though you understand that you are vitally connected to the body. Ask yourself, what's next for you? What's next for you? Let's stand as an act of, of uh, kind of attention to what the Spirit would might, might say to us here in our last moments together. The question that I just want to ask is, what would the Spirit say to the church this morning? Some of you need to get your calendar and start carving out time to vitally connect with the Lord, to be in his presence, to be unhurried and unrushed. Some of you uh, need to reprioritize some things in your life so that you can function in the body the way that you were called to. Some of you are afraid that you're going to look dumb. You have an encouraging word for someone. You feel like maybe God would want you to pray with somebody. Maybe he would want you to reach out and, and bring a meal, and you're like, ah, I don't want to bother anybody. This is so Canadian culture of us. I don't want to bother anybody. Yes, please bother me with the cookies you were thinking about on your heart, you know? We, we're always so afraid of, we're so afraid of all the things. I put myself in this category. Some of us need to decide today that I will not be afraid. I'm going to learn to walk and step with the Spirit. I'm going to spend time in His presence. I'm going to hear from Him. I'm going to, I'm going to execute on the things that He asks me to do in obedience. I'm not, I'm not be afraid of that. Even if I mess it up sometimes or don't get it quite right or whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to be walking in the things He's called me to walk in. I don't know. There's a, a lot of things the Spirit might say, but could we just pause for a moment? in the stillness of this place. I don't know how still your week is. My suspicion is this might be the quietest moment you've had for a while. And we just say, Holy Spirit, come and speak to each member of your body with what you want to say. Whatever it is. Holy Spirit, burn in our hearts to long for your presence more than we long for anything else. Show us every place, Lord. Show us every place that we've gotten our priorities mixed up. Holy Spirit, I invite you to just expose any lies that we've believed from the enemy that we are not good enough to serve, that we are not able to do anything, we're not useful, that we have to have achieved a certain level of whatever in order to be uh, a benefit to the body. I just expose those lies and say, that is not what your word says. I also expose the lie of, of that where the fear comes from, that somehow we're going to be out of step, somehow we're going to look silly, somehow we're going to offend someone or, or whatever the lie would be. And in fact, we just need to be obedient to you. 
just speak truth to those lies. Holy Spirit, we invite you to just do that in all of our hearts. Come and say what you want to say to us, Lord. Lord Jesus, if we are not transformed by your spirit, then we don't have a reason to be here. We, we need you. We need you in everything. We confess how often we have run ahead of things. We have done it in our own strength. We have um, tried, to, tried to work our way into earning our salvation in some way, shape, or form. But we, we rest now. We remember who we are in Christ. And we, 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 we settle that fact and invite you now from that place of security in Jesus to show us how it is that you would want us to live. Anything you want to do in us, God, we want our hearts to be soft towards it. Do a work in us, Lord Jesus. Do a work in us. And let it affect Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, every day of our lives, that let what you are saying to us now be a part of the, the walking forward that you are calling us to in Jesus' name. And so church, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In unity we say, amen, amen. That's my prayer for you, church.